The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. morning and welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. I'm Chris Martin. We have a very momentous lesson because this is the end, the final lesson in our study on the Apostle Paul. Now, there are some of you that are probably very happy we're moving on to something else. Uh, for me, it's been an incredible study because we started more than two years ago. June the 24th of 2018, we started this study, and uh, but for the coronavirus uh, slowdown, we would have finished right at about the two-year mark. We carried over a little bit because we missed a couple of classes in um, uh, late March and early April, but uh, it's been an amazing study, and I've got to confess that it's been a lifelong dream of mine to do this. When I was in college, uh, I had to take several religion classes. I had to take uh, at Baylor a mandatory Old Testament class, which I absolutely hated because I thought the professor was a liberal heretic. Uh, I had to take a New Testament class, uh, loved the professor, but he was really, really old. In fact, we joked in class that uh, he was a teenager when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. Uh, so I finished my Old Testament, New Testament classes, not really excited about the religion department at Baylor. A very dear friend of mine suggested that I take Take an elective called The Life and Teaching of the Apostle Paul. I did. It was taught by an amazing professor, uh, one of the uh, conservative evangelicals on the faculty, and she was amazing. In 15 weeks uh, of one semester, I learned uh, to fall in love with the character, the perseverance, the mind, the heart of the Apostle Paul, and I always dreamed how much deeper it could have gone, but we were just limited by class time. Uh, as I started teaching adult Bible study in my adult years, I realized I went through his books uh, that I didn't have the ability to tie them together. I didn't have the ability to go deep into his background. So for many, many years, this has been a dream of mine. So thanks to you for allowing me to do this. Uh, I'm very appreciative of Pastor Greg and Ben Pritchett who let me teach however the Lord leads, uh, and it's really been a dream of mine. So what I want to do today uh, is end with a perspective on his legacy, because we've spent the last two years looking at about 30 years of his life. This morning, in about 50 minutes, I'm going to cover the next 2,000 years, and we're going to cover uh, the legacy of Paul, the influence of Paul, some of the things that uh, he is responsible for after his death, and I hope you enjoy it. Just as a quick preview, next week we're going to start our new study, uh, and before we jump into the book of the Revelation, we've got to look at its author, and so next week we're going to take a look at the guy who wrote the book of the Revelation, as well as the gospel that bears his name, as well as uh, three epistles that bear his name, and we're going to look at him uh, and his mindset before we get into the book of the Revelation. You'll see why I'm doing that next week, because it's actually important to understand what he does with Revelation, to understand who he is and what he's been through in his life. You'll get that context next week. But next week, we're going to jump into John, and I think you'll enjoy that character study next week. But for this week, I looked for a verse, and I actually saved a verse that I think best describes the legacy or the life and the resulting legacy of the Apostle Paul. It's from Ephesians chapter 3. I saved it when I taught you the third chapter of Ephesians because I knew I was going to do this. 
and I end because I think it's the greatest way to summarize in one verse Paul's life, his legacy, and his ministry. It says in verse 20, Paul writing, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There's four reasons I picked that verse as a theme to describe the life and the legacy of the Apostle Paul. Initially, because it captures Paul's idea that the gospel is more than we can fathom. The power of God, the plan of God, the will of God is more than we can fathom, and it's amazing to be along with the ride. Number two, it's more than we can do alone. It says at the end of verse 20, according to the power that works within us, a reference to the Holy Spirit, the connection to God that gives us the ability to do that which we could not do on our own. We certainly saw that in Paul in persevering, all the things he persevered, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and writing the books that he wrote. Very, very powerful. The third reason is it's for more than us. We see that in verse 21 where he talks about the reason is for God's glory as seen in the church and seen through Jesus Christ. So it's for more than us, it's for his glory, and we're just here as his servants. And it's for more than now. It says at the end of verse 21, it's for all generations forever and ever. And that certainly encompasses the legacy of Paul. If I had to take that verse and summarize it in just a couple of words, I would describe it as Paul proving to us that a faithful life guarantees a faithful legacy. He certainly lived a faithful life from his conversion on the Damascus Road that we saw so many months ago. And then we saw that throughout his ministry. And today I'm going to show you how that fulfilled and guaranteed a faithful legacy to him. There's a couple of legacies we're going to touch on. I've identified four of them. There's actually quite a few of them. I could actually do probably 10 or 12, but I picked four because I want to let you guys get out of here in time for lunch. But the first one is obviously scripture. And I want to talk to you real quickly about the perceptions of scripture when written all the way up through our modern day Bibles. It starts out with a realization at the time of Paul's final imprisonment, a number of his spirit-inspired epistles had been around for a number of years. At the time of his final imprisonment, remember Galatians had probably been in circulation for more than 15 years. First and second Thessalonians, 12 to 13 years. The book of Romans would have been in circulation for at least a decade. Uh, first and second Corinthians would have been in circulation for seven to eight years. And so we see the fact that his writings would have been immediately recognized for what they are. That is more than just a letter from Paul, more than just a letter from their founder or their pastor. They would have been recognized for what they are, and that is the Word of God. The early church fathers echo that for us. In other words, the pastors that followed Paul recognized his writings as scripture from before he even died. The greatest evidence for the recognition of his writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were scripture comes from none other than Peter himself. Writing during Paul's first imprisonment, so during his house arrest in Rome, when he's writing uh, Ephesians and he's writing Philippians and those things we studied from his first prison, uh, his first imprisonment, we see uh, Peter writing, uh, in his second book, chapter 3, about the Apostle Paul. So they're both alive. 
Paul is still writing. He's written a number of books, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago. But he says in verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with that wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, at this point in time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not exist in the form that we recognize them today as the collective Gospels that make up our New Testament. When he references other scriptures, he's not, rec- he's not referencing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's referencing the entire Old Testament. He's putting Paul on par with the writings of Moses, the writings of David, the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the rest of the prophets and everyone else that wrote in the Old Testament. And he's saying they're, uh, they're misinterpreted by the ignorant and the unstable, just like they've done in the Old Testament, just like they do with Paul. So Peter gives us a great biblical perspective on Paul's works inspired by the Holy Spirit were recognized as such from the minute he started to circulate them. Now, as I told you when we started studying his letters, he wrote a whole bunch of things that weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit. They haven't been preserved. They weren't recognized by the church as the word of God. But the 13 letters that we have preserved were written to be preserved, were written as a communication of God's word, and that's why I spent so much time studying them with you. And from the time Paul wrote them, that was recognized. Now, after his death, as we started to see a collection of his letters, the first place in history that we have a contemporaneous recollection or recording of someone saying they started to collect scriptures here was in the church of Ephesus, the church where John came from after he left Jerusalem with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And after John's time there, their pastor was Onesimus. I believe, uh, although it's not 100% sure, as I taught you when we studied the book of Philemon, uh, that it's the same Onesimus that is the former runaway slave in the book of Philemon. He became, after his uh, time in training, after his time to learn more of God's word, he became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And it's fascinating if you think about him being there because of what he would at that church have been able to, to, to collect. They would have had the original book of Ephesians. They would have had the original letter of Ephesians. They would have copied it for others, but they would have had the original papyrus from Paul. They would have had the original books of Philemon. They would have had the original book of Colossians. Uh, And it's possible they would have had more because of where they were centrally located and because John was there. It's highly likely they would have had the original of the Gospel of John, the original of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the original manuscript of the book of the Revelation. So if that church, as the second largest church in the Roman Empire at the end of the 1st century, start of the 2nd century, had the original manuscripts of those books, it's not surprising that Onesimus and the rest of the church would have wanted to collect and start to copy Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
They would have wanted to copy the other letters to the other churches that Paul wrote. And from the second century on, there was a a reference to the fact that the collection of scriptures that we now call the New Testament started at the end of the first century, the start of the second century at the church in Ephesus. Now, what you've got to understand about the reproduction of Paul's letters is they had uh, several thousand years of uh, a guideline, thousand years of a blueprint in terms of how the Old Testament was copied because the Old Testament scholars had a very rigid method of copying the Old Testament. They had rules on how many Hebrew letters could be on a certain line. They had a certain rule on when sentences had to stop and how they had to start. They had rules on if you make one error, you throw the entire thing away and start all over again so that the copy can have absolutely no errors of any kind on it, even a speck of ink or a speck of something else. Uh, And they created a series of rules that were followed generation after generation, century after century, to guarantee that the Old Testament, from its start with the writing of Moses, all the way up through the very last writing in Malachi, had been copied under strict, excruciatingly precise rules to guarantee the authenticity of the Old Testament. So when the New Testament Christians started to do the same thing for the letters of Paul or the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they adopted the exact same rules. You could only have so many letters on a line. You had to start and end sentences the exact same way. You had to start and end paragraphs the exact same way. If you made any mistake whatsoever, you had to throw it all away and start over again. So as they had to copy letter for letter, sentence for sentence to make sure it was an idea, exact duplicate they followed very strict rules and we know today from the copied manuscripts that exist the amazingly good job they did i'll reflect on that in just a couple of minutes now what i want to do to discuss the concept of scripture is look at the oldest copies and what we know of the accuracy of these reproductions in other words how do you know that the paul that we've been studying is the same thing that he wrote down 2,000 years ago. We know it quite easily. We've got copies going back to the very beginning of the first century. Uh, There was some speculation with the Green family that owns Hobby Lobby when they started to build the collection for the Museum of the Bible that they may have had some things that dated to the end of the first century. Those are still being studied. I can't tell you with any kind of absolute accuracy that we have any manuscripts from the first century, but uh, we are still studying those things. And uh, in the Museum of the Bible and at other research places uh, around the country, they still study those things. The earliest copy that we know of It's called Papyrus 87. It's abbreviated P87. It's a fragment of the book of Philemon. It's the oldest copy that not only we have of the entire Bible, it's the earliest copy we have of the Pauline canon of his book, of his collection of 13 letters. Uh, And we know from that little fragment, it is Philemon because we know the word order. We know the sentence order. It's exactly the same that's in our Bible today, even though it's just a fragment from those verses in the book of Philemon. The earliest complete copies of quite a few books we have comes from several years later in 150 AD, and I've talked about this in several prior classes. It's called Papyrus 45 and 46, also known as the Chester Beatty Papyri. Uh, 
Uh, half of it is at the, in Dublin uh, at the uh, Trinity College Library there in Dublin. The other half of it, ironically, is at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, Natalie and I, a couple of years ago while in Dublin, had the chance to go see it. And it was absolutely amazing because if you can read Greek, you can read uh, all four Gospels, you can read the book of Acts, you can read, as I said on the screen, parts of Romans, all of Hebrews, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Corinthians, and parts of First Thessalonians, just like you would if you opened up your English Bible today. The Greek is very readable, the ink is amazingly well preserved, even though portions of the top and the bottom have been lost uh, due to insects or weather over the years. It's an amazing collection that gives scholars the ability to look at what we have going back to the middle of the second century, comparing it to your Bible in the 21st century, and being able to say for the overwhelming majority of the scriptures, word for word, letter for letter, sentence for sentence, it's exactly the same. It's an amazing degree of, uh, of, of accuracy and transmission before there were photocopiers. Uh, the earliest copies that we have of Papyrus 32 comes from about 175 AD, and it's portions of the book of Titus that we discovered back in the spring, that we studied back in the spring, uh, just like with uh, the earlier Papyrus we saw where it's just a fragment of Philemon. This fragment of Titus gives us the ability to compare some things that aren't in the Chester Beatty papyri, and we can see from Titus uh, the accuracy of the transmission from the time Paul wrote it up through today. Uh, there's another guy you ought to know about named Marcion. This guy was a weirdo. He's a whack. He was a wealthy anti-Semitic mariner. In other words, he hated Jews. And as a result, even though he was a Christian, he hated all aspects of Christianity or the Bible that had an influence or a reference to Judaism. So because of its heavy Judaism references, he hated Matthew, rejected it, rejected Mark, uh, rejected John, kept significant portions of Luke in the book of Acts, and decided that the only other part of the Bible were the writings of Paul. He was excommunicated from the Christian church as a heretic. Uh, he had lots of really smart people writing why he was completely wrong and those other things that he excluded are scripture. But what's significant about him is as early as 140 AD, he identified by name all 13 books of the Apostle Paul, and he said, that's scripture. The debate of the scholars of his day was not with those 13 books, or Luke, or Acts. They acknowledged that as scripture. They argued with him about everything else that he took out of the Bible and ultimately kicked him out of the church, and he died not being well known, and his efforts to start his own church failed miserably. But the fact he recognized the 13 letters of Paul as authentic scripture uh, was significant. So I mention him because it reflects the perception of the day that this was scripture, this was the word of God. Known copies today, 871 Greek manuscripts exist of Paul's letters, either in part, like we saw with Philemon or Titus, or in whole, like we saw with portions of the Chester Beatty papyri, that exist before the time of Constantine. If you take all of the things that existed after Emperor Constantine in the 4th century when Christianity became legal, 
the number of copies of really old Bible manuscripts that reflect the letters of the Apostle Paul prior to the, one, the year 1000 literally number in excess of 6,000 copies. But prior to Constantine, when it was exclusively in Greek, when you can compare the Greek and then translate that into English, it gives us the ability to look at 99% of the writings of the Apostle Paul and everything being verbatim accurate. Minor, minor differences in spelling, sometimes a difference in word order where it would say uh, our Lord Jesus Christ rather than another translation that was uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, and those kind of differences uh, are recognized by scholars as meaningless. But those 871 prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what Paul wrote is exactly what we have in our Bible today. So you know when you read Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, you are reading what Paul wrote because we can go back to the decades and centuries right after his uh, life when they were copying the original manuscripts and those copies all have uniformity, they all have consistency, they all have the same accuracy, and that gives us the confidence for the Bible that we now have in our laps. Now, if none of those things existed, if every single one of them were destroyed, if every single one of them just somehow ceased to exist overnight, there is a second way to verify that the Bible that sits in your lap containing the letters of Paul or exactly what he wrote. And that is because in non-Bible written communication, the early church pastors, the early church leaders, the early church writers copied down verses from Paul's epistles. They copied down sentences or sometimes entire passages from Romans or Galatians or 1st or 2nd Corinthians or whatever they wanted to quote from. And I want to run through a couple of those. It starts with Clement of Rome. He was one of the, the first pastors of Rome. He would have been a contemporary of John. Uh, and he quotes from four of Paul's letters. And as you'll see as we go forward in time, more and more people are quoting the four things he quotes from, uh, from Romans, from Ephesians, from Galatians, are verbatim identical to what we have in our Bible. His letters aren't scripture. Don't misunderstand me. They're just letters from a pastor. But they accurately quote letter for letter, Greek word for Greek word, exactly what is in those manuscripts that I showed you a minute ago, and exactly what in English is in our Bible today. It gets bigger. One of my favorite guys from history, his name is Ignatius. He lived uh, at the end of the first century, the start of the second century. He was pastoring by 110 AD. I call him Iggy. He's a great guy. He was the pastor at Antioch, Syria. They took him uh, as a prisoner and carried him back to Rome during 110 AD for execution. And as he was going back to Rome, he was allowed to write letters and give them to the Christians and all the churches between Antioch, Syria, and Rome, Italy. He wrote in several of his letters that he was quoting from Paul and called it scripture. And he quotes at length seven of Paul's letters, verbatim, letter for letter, word for word, sentence for sentence, exactly what's in those Greek manuscripts, exactly what's in the English translation in your lap today. It gets bigger. A guy named Polycarp pastored in Smyrna. I'm going to teach you that in the book of Revelation in a couple of weeks, where that is and why it's important. But he pastored there for 50 years. 
He was a student of the Apostle John. He also wrote in his letters while he was a pastor writing to different churches around him that Paul's letters were scripture, and he quoted verses, some of them in long passages from all 13 of Paul's letters. So as a church leader, he was recognizing it was scripture, and once again, we have from him in his Greek letters, the exact same letters, exact same words, exact same sentences that we saw in the manuscript Greek scriptures, as well as we see in our English Bibles today in a verbatim translation. Uh, Papias, 125 AD, another student of the Apostle John, a friend of Polycarp, he quotes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and has three very long quotes from the Apostle Paul that uh, is significant because in those long passages, every word's the same, every sentence is the same, every paragraph is the same as we have in the Greek manuscripts of Paul and as we also have in our English Bibles today. So once again, proving the authenticity of Scripture. We jump forward in time a little bit more. Justin Martyr. Uh, or Justin the Martyr. Uh, he was uh, a writer, a, a wandering teacher and preacher who wrote as he traveled between 130 and 160 AD. He was very prolific. He quotes from the Gospels 286 times and quotes from Paul 43 different times. Once again, word for word, letter for letter, sentence for sentence, exactly the same in the Greek manuscripts, exactly the same in the English version of your Bible today. Irenaeus, 180 AD. He's a pastor in Gaul, what is now uh, France, the city of Lyon in the southern part of France. He was a student of Polycarp. He quotes from every book in the New Testament with three small exceptions and quotes from 12 of Paul's 13 letters and quotes from them 499 times. We've got 499 quotes of Bible in 12 of Paul's letters that we can then compare to those Old Testament manuscripts, compare them to the English Bible, and once again, word for word, letter for letter, sentence for sentence, exactly identically the same. There's something called the Mertorium Fragment. It's a uh, passage from a second century guy that is commenting on his Bible and commenting on scripture. And he recognizes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, the writings of John, the writings of James. And he recognizes all 13 letters of Paul as being scripture. So another source recognizing these 13 letters aren't just under the human inspiration of Paul, they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, their Bible. And uh, now, fast forwarding about 100 years after Paul's death, it was still recognized what had been well known for the prior century, and that is what Paul wrote in those 13 books was scripture, it was Bible. We jump forward to the start of the third century, one of my favorite guys in church history because he's a lawyer. He's the first lawyer, real lawyer in church history. He's from North Africa. He's from Carthage. And not only did he practice law, he practiced Bible. He was a teacher and a preacher. And he, as most lawyers, was a really prolific writer. As you can see on the screen, he's got 3,800 quotes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
He's got 2,609 quotes of Bible from the writings of the Apostle Paul from his 13 books. So he quotes from everything that Paul ever wrote, big sections of Romans and Galatians and 1 Timothy and 2 Thessalonians and everything Timothy wrote. And just like with the other guys, we can look at his Greek and letter for letter, word for word, sentence for sentence, it's exactly the same thing in the Old Testament manuscripts we have in Greek. It's the same thing in English sitting in your lap today. Final person, Origen. He lived in 230 AD, the start of the third century. He's from North Egypt. He's from Alexandria, Egypt, and is the first real theologian, the first guy that was really teaching and preaching from a theological perspective based on the Old Testament. He's the kind of guy that would go back to the Old Testament, look at the prophecies of Christ and how that was fulfilled. He would look at the scarlet thread that I taught you a couple of years ago and look at Christ in Genesis and Christ in Deuteronomy and Christ in the Psalms. And that's why he was a theologian. He's got 9,200 quotes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's got 7,778 quotes of different passages that Paul wrote in all 13 of his books. He's got 17,900 quotes of the entire Bible. And they're word for word, letter for letter, sentence for sentence, exactly the same that's in all those Old Testament manuscripts I showed you, exactly the same as translated into English in your lap today. So with that conclusion, we've got the ability, or with that analysis, we've got the ability to conclude that we can recreate the entire New Testament, including all 13 letters of Paul, in their entirety, without reference to a single early Greek manuscript, just based upon the early church fathers quoting from them in letters to other people that have been preserved. So we've got two independent sources of literature. We've got the copies of the originals, because none of the originals uh, were able to survive because they were on parchment, which degrades pretty quickly, unless it's in a really dry place like the desert of Egypt. And then we've got a preservation separately through the letters that people wrote, copying from and quoting from the scripture and the fact that they nailed it letter for letter, word by word, across decades and even centuries shows the care they took when they were copying scripture, not as a copy of scripture, but just to quote it to another church or to another friend as they were writing it. It's truly amazing how God has preserved his word and we can look at all these different things and scholars spend their entire lives studying the accuracy of the Bible and it is truly amazing when you consider how it's been not only preserved, but how accurate it is 2,000 years after it was written. There is no other book there's no other writing in human history with that degree of independent verification and with that degree of long-term accuracy. It is truly amazing. Uh, now, I've got to make a quick note because there's some other stuff out there that reference to be writings of Paul or about Paul. I didn't teach you this over the last two years because... They're the Gnostics. They made stuff up. Uh, they pretended to be writing gospel, 
200 years after Paul had died. Uh, they give them fancy biblical sounding names like the Acts of Paul or the Martyrdom of Paul. You can go get them today, but they're just complete fiction. They talk about uh, crazy rules for living life. They talk about uh, aspects of mysticism and uh, just things that, that just make no sense whatsoever when compared to the writings of Paul. And they were basically a bunch of frauds that says, we're going to pretend to be writing about Paul or talk about a fake history of Paul that we've come up with. But they were blasted by the church. They were recognized as heretics. They were never acknowledged within a sphere of orthodoxy. They were blasted from the minute they came out. So I just had to note, if you ever come across something called the Acts of Paul or Paul and Thelka or the Martyrdom of Paul, don't bother wasting your time on them because you might as well be reading a comic book because that's about how historically accurate it is. Now, I got to jump forward a couple of years because you got to understand what happened. Because while in the early centuries before Constantine, when people had the ability to read their Greek uh, Bible, they were able to keep up with Paul. They were able to understand Paul. They were able to teach Paul. But something big happened in the 5th century, 4th century and the 5th century, with Jerome and his Bible that changed that drastically. The Pope drafted this really, really smart guy named Jerome and said, I want you to take the Greek manuscripts and create a Latin Bible. In the late 300s, using the language of the day. It's called the Vulgate because the language of the day was considered vulgar compared to ancient Greece, the, the, the language of the day. And so while people in the late 300s and early 400s would have been able to read Jerome's Bible, the problem is it became... Uh, greater than it was ever intended to be. In other words, the popes and the bishops that followed basically said, you can now no longer teach from any other Bible. You can now no longer read from any other Bible. If you've got a Greek copy of your Bible, throw it away because the only inspired text is the Latin text from Jerome back from the late 300s. And so for over a thousand years, the only Bible in Christendom, the only Bible in the church was Latin, which after a couple of decades, no one spoke and certainly no one ever spoke outside of the core area around the Vatican in Rome. So in Gaul, in England, in Germany, in North Africa, they spoke local dialects. They didn't speak modern-day Latin. And even after the 5th and 6th centuries, people in Rome didn't even speak Latin. And so for centuries, the only people that could read the Bible were those trained in ancient Latin at the Vatican. And so you would have pastors who would read it. Uh, you would have bishops and the Pope could read it. But the vast majority of the pastors in the local churches learned to read phonetically but had no idea what they were reading. They would stand up and read from Romans, and they didn't understand it because they didn't understand ancient Latin. Their audience didn't understand it, and it led to some of the greatest unfortunate abuses in the history of Christianity because no one had access to the Gospels. No one had access to the writings of, of, of uh, Paul. 
Those are called the Dark Ages, from about 500 through about 1500, rough numbers. Uh, we see a massive increase in violence and brutality, a lack of intellectual interest in schooling. We see feudalism, as I've said on the screen, and we see a religious dominance and a religious perversion where the church told people what their Bible said without giving them the ability to hear their Bible being read or read the Bible themselves. That changed drastically. And so one of the legacies of Paul is the Reformation that came about as the result of some new translations of his work that people could read. It starts with this guy named Erasmus. Erasmus and his Greek Bible in 1516 AD. He was a student from Oxford that taught at Cambridge. You can go to Cambridge, England today and stand as I did in his dorm room, in his apartment where he lived as a faculty member. He got numerous Greek texts from the fall of Constantinople when the Muslims invaded in 1453. Christians left. They took their ancient Greek manuscripts with them. They brought them to different places in the uh, European world, and some of them migrated to Cambridge, and he took a number of these together and for the first time in 1,200 years created a Greek translation. If he had five Greek copies of Matthew, he would decide what was the most accurate, what was the most common use of word by word, uh, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, so that he could have a Greek Bible that most closely resembled the Greek Bible that would have existed uh, during the first century. That is significant because, as you can see here, this is an actual copy of one of the early uh, printings of his uh, 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 Greek New Testament. Uh, you can see in the picture, the, the screenshot right below my, my picture, uh, on one side was Greek, on the other side was Latin, so you could compare Jerome's Vulgate with the original Greek. That became significant because while no one spoke Latin anymore, they still knew how to read and translate Greek because it continued to be studied in the 1500s, and so they took that and for the first time started to translate it into the language of their day. One of the first translators was this guy, Martin Luther. He translated Erasmus's Greek New Testament into German. At the time he did that, he was already a monk, he was already a seminary professor, but he wasn't saved. He did not know anything about a saving faith in Christ until he was reading the translated uh, Greek works of Romans from Erasmus in 1517. He has a quote. He says, I read in Romans, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to, re, to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Even though he was a seminary professor, even though he was a monk, he became a Christian reading the Greek translation from Erasmus of the book of Romans, uh, and it changed his life. 
Uh, he was tried and convicted of heresy because of how he started to interpret the book of Romans and Ephesians and all the other writings of Paul and the Gospels. Uh, but for the protection that he had from a particular prince in Germany, he would have been executed. But the fact he was allowed to stay alive and he could write and teach and preach started the Protestant Reformation. Fast forward to one of my favorite guys in history, William Tyndale, lived at the end of the 1400s and started the 1500s. He translated Erasmus's Greek New Testament into English. He was so overwhelmed when he could read the Greek New Testament for the first time in his life, and he learned about the power message of salvation. He learned about grace and justification provided by Christ as seen in the writings of Paul. Just like Luther, his life was changed reading Ephesians and Romans and Galatians as well as the Gospels. Um, he said very famously, if God spare my life, Ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives a plow, in other words, an uneducated farmer, to know more of the scriptures than you. That was a slam on the Pope. Uh, he basically said, I'm going to translate it in English, and anybody can read it. Here's some examples. A translation from Tyndale into English in the early 1500s. The spelling's a little different, but you can still read it and you'll recognize these very famous verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvatio, salvation, to all who believe, namely to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Famous quote from Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Different spelling, but we can still understand it from 500 years ago in English. But God setteth out his love that he hath to us, seeing that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the last one from Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through the help of Christ, which strengtheneth me. I thought you'd like that. That's what he got from his translation from Erasmus's Greek New Testament. So everybody in English and the English-speaking world for the first time in history could read the Bible. And when they read Paul, it was transformative. He too, like Luther, was charged by the Pope with heresy, tried and condemned, and in 1536, a papal envoy tracked him down and killed him and then burned his bones, and then took his bones and threw them in a river because they wouldn't even give it a proper burial. Amazing reaction because he simply wanted to get the Gospels and the letters of Paul out to the congregations of England so they could read it in the English language. John Calvin, early 1500s, he translated Erasmus into French, Swiss, and English in what's called the Geneva Bible. And then he also built systematic theology around Paul's teachings. He took uh, all of Paul's teachings and he says, what does all of this combined teach us about God the Father? What does all this combined teach us about Jesus Christ his Son? What does all this combined teach us about prayer? And he developed systematic theology for the first time in the modern era. Uh, he has a quote from Galatians where he says the Galatians were taught by Paul the faith of Christ, but afterwards seduced by false apostles, that's a reference to the Catholic Church, who thought that our salvation must be finished and made perfect by our works, 
and faith alone doth not suffice, does not suffice. To these Paul calls back again from works unto faith with great diligence, plainly proving that the works of the law, which go before faith, make us only servants and are of no importance to godliness and salvation. But faith makes us the sons of God, and from thence good works without constraint forth with plentifully flow. That's a little archaic English, but he's basically saying Paul established 1,500 years ago, you don't get to heaven by your good deeds. You don't get there by the Catholic sacraments. You don't get there by Catholic baptism. You don't get there by Catholic last rites. You get there only by a faith in Jesus Christ. And it spurred on the Protestant Reformation that Luther started and Calvin continued. The second legacy of Paul is his missions work. You don't read about missions, but you see it in his actions. You see it in his first, second, third, and uh, fourth, and even fifth missionary journeys when I describe that as Rome. Uh, And I'm not even counting a trip to Spain because we don't know for sure that that happened, but the places we know he went measure 10,282 miles on foot. Now, that would be a long way for you and I to go by car. Imagine going by foot. And just to put that into modern context for me and you, that's like me and you walking from Houston to Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and back, going back up and coming back again, going back up a third time and walking back again, and then starting a fourth trip to Kansas City. Three trips to Canada and back, plus a trip to Kansas City, that's 10,282 miles. That's a heck of a long way on foot to simply take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have never heard of him. It was a tremendous picture of missions, and fast forward deep into the Protestant Reformation, uh, into the late 1700s and the early 1800s, these two guys are among the hundreds I could have picked that were motivated by the example of Paul to become missionaries. William Carey became a very famous missionary to India for 40 years. Hudson Taylor became a missionary to China for 50 years, and there are hundreds of more. We could talk about David Livingstone. We could talk about all kinds of missionaries, even up through the 20th and 21st century, that have been motivated by the example of missions from the Apostle Paul. He also spurred biblical research because, as you remember from some of our studies, he referenced back to the Old Testament. He would quote the Old Testament when making an argument about Jesus Christ and salvation. He would quote something that David said in the Psalms. He would quote something that Isaiah or Jeremiah had said. He would quote something that Moses had said. And so that type of analytical research in the Bible comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, comparing ancient scriptures. As people in the 16 and 17 and 1800s started to have Bibles they could read, they started to do biblical research. Now, it's fascinating that the longer that went on and the more liberal that some people took that, that the same approach to biblical research caused some people to conclude that Paul really didn't write all of his letters or Paul really wasn't what the Bible says about him and other people did it. And I think that's kind of comical. But the fact he started uh, a resurgence of biblical research during the Protestant Reformation that continues to today is absolutely fascinating. Now, 
I think the bottom line on Paul, at least in my own life, is his greatest legacy is his life and teaching. The inspiration I've seen in my own life, the inspiration that you saw in people that we just looked at, like Martin Luther and John Calvin, you see over and over again. And if time permitted, I could go through literally hundreds, if not thousands, of famous pastors, famous writers, famous people who have a testimony that somehow relates to their conversion when they read the Apostle Paul's explanation of the Gospels, or how inspiring a different struggle in life was, or how their favorite verses in the Bible are ones that Paul penned. Everybody's got a different story, but his life and teaching have been inspirational to literally hundreds of millions of people. That's why I took two years to teach this class. That's why I wanted you to know his mind, his heart, his passion. I wanted you to be able to rebut the false charges against him that he was sexist or misogynistic or racist or whatever else people would say bad about him, and that you'd really see his heart and his mind and his character and then understand his teachings and what they teach us about Jesus Christ and our life with him. Uh, in my own life, I've decided to conclude the lesson with just a couple of lessons. And in the last 10 or so minutes we've got, I'm just going to go through some kind of quick hits of things that I jotted down as I was teaching, the things I kind of came up with over the last couple of weeks. I was getting ready for this lesson on how to end. And this is Paul's legacy in my life, in Chris Martin's life. What has he meant to me? What have I picked up in teaching this over the last two years? What has been inspirational to me? Initially, three things from a divine transformation with a lifelong influence. In other words, he was changed on the Damascus Road, and for the rest of his life, he manifested that change. Number one conclusion, always steady through unfathomable suffering. I gave you the R-rated version of what he went through so that you would appreciate just how bad it was. So you could appreciate that his back with scars and sores from being whipped, concussions uh, from getting hit in the head with rocks, and all the different things he went through is a level of suffering that we can't fathom, yet he still remained steady. He continued to write. He continued to preach. And that was inspirational to me. Unwavering love for those who abused him. If somebody doesn't invite us to lunch, if somebody says something that's negative about us, our human reaction is just to reject them and stop doing whatever it is that God wanted us to do. Paul says, no, that's not the right example. He showed unwavering love, even for those last week that we saw that executed him. And it was an amazing lesson from his conversion up through the last breath he breathed. Third point, content with whether he was abused or whether he was blessed. In all of his writings, you see contentment over and over and over. Not a contentment in his local, individual, isolated circumstances, but a contentment in who he was, whose he was, i.e. God's, and his contentment knowing he was right in the middle of God's will and God would take care of him as God wanted his message to be done. He's also an example. He's a point of an example for me to look at and say, I want to do that. He's got, a, number one, a love for others because of his joy in God. He shows over and over in his scriptures, uh, in his writings, 
an unconditional love for others who were completely unlovable. Not even those who beat him, but those that were just indifferent, those that were arrogant, those that didn't even know they needed to believe Jesus Christ. He still had a love for them because of his joy in God. As we saw in the last couple of lessons from 2 Timothy, we saw maturity going from human arrogance in the book of Galatians, where he says early in his ministry, I'm the greatest Jew that's ever lived, up until the point later in his ministry when he's in prison, when he says, I'm the greatest sinner who has ever lived, and I'm unworthy of the title that I have of Christian. That's an amazing level of maturity. The closer he got to God, the less he saw of himself. And we also saw him growing old, not believing any concept of retirement, and using every opportunity later in life to use those opportunities God gave him to use his spiritual gift. He's been a teacher to me. I've gained as much out of this study as you have of me teaching you. I've just learned tremendously. But he taught me, number one, the inseparability of logic and love. I talked talk to you when we talked the book of Romans, that it was such a logical book that for years it was taught by Simon Greenleaf at, at Harvard as the greatest example of proper logical thinking in Western literature. But despite that degree of logic, even in the book of Romans, you see love, love of his Jewish brethren, love of the Gentiles that he was trying to save from chapters 11, 12, 13, and on through the end of the book of Romans. We see it throughout all of his books, just an unseparatedness between logic and love, between theology and application. His idea of Christianity is it's a relationship, not a religion. It's not about following rules. It's about being in close communion with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that lives in our heart. And this concept of Christian freedom, of I can do anything, I don't get to heaven by simply following a bunch of rules, but it's freedom as a bond servant. It's freedom as someone who wants to serve Christ who wants to mimic that in how I serve my spouse, how I serve my law partners, how I serve my employees, how I serve my family. So while I've got the freedom to do anything I want, it's in the context of a bond servant that needs to serve other people, which means I choose to refrain from exercising some of the freedom that I have in Christ. He's an inspiration for me. He was always the person of leadership. He was always the one out front. He was always the one teaching. He was always the one preaching. He was always the one volunteering to get in trouble, but he was always surrounded by friends. Never a lone ranger, never a hermit. He was always surrounded by friends, and he knew how important that was for his health and his ministry. He was blunt but always affirming. As harsh as he could be to someone when he saw them sinning, he was always affirming, seeing them the way God sees them. And as we saw through First and Second Timothy and his lessons on the church, he realized it's a place that has got to be safe, it's got to be orthodox, and it's got to be relevant. It's got to be life-sustained. So he gave us lessons in Timothy on how to do that. And church is not just a place to go as a social country club. It's not just a place to go learn. It's got to be safe and orthodox and life-threatening. His life and teaching is an amazing legacy. And I wanted to end the way that college class on the life of Paul ended, because that professor taught me a whole bunch of stuff. I did not keep my notes, unfortunately, but I remember the final day of class. 
It's seared into my brain. I could never forget it. The professor ended our class the same way I'm going to end our two-year study of Paul by a reference to something that Paul wrote as an encouragement to us. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. The professor taught us at the end of that college class and left us with the words, if you want to know how to deal with life as a husband or wife, as a parent, as a worker, as a leader, in whatever field you go into, she said, imitate Paul. That's my message to you. I spent two years so you understand what that means. You understand his mind, you understand his heart, you understand his themes over and over and over again. And as you apply that to your life, imitate Paul. I can't think of a better way to end it. I can't come up with a better ending. It's been something I've never forgotten. I hope you'll remember it any time in your quiet time, any time in a church lesson, a sermon, any time in something I teach. If we go back and touch on the writings of Paul, I hope it reminds you, imitate Paul. Next week, John, the disciple who Jesus loved, it's going to be good. I hope you'll be with us. Close me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this chance to study this amazing servant of yours in Paul. Thank you for giving us two years to work through his life, to work through every book and every chapter that he ever wrote. We pray that you would use this to motivate us, to change us, give us the ability to remember those things we've learned in this study so we can imitate Paul and be better men, better women, better husbands and wives, better parents and grandparents, better leaders in our community, better servants of you because of the inspiration, the teaching, and the example of this beloved brother who someday we can spend time with in heaven. Thank you for the chance to study him and his lessons through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that's now in our Bible as Scripture. We thank you for the knowledge of him. We thank you for how it reflected the knowledge of who you are. We love you more for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. See you next week. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.